Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 17. As we've just sung with the psalmist of how the Lord often brings us into difficult circumstances, how we need God's help, how our hope is in Him, how He can raise us up and lift us up because our God is indeed with us. We'll see with the Israelites that God often leads them into trials, into desolate places, and He does this for a reason. And we can learn a lot from how God is teaching Israel in these trials, in these circumstances of how God deals with us and how God often is teaching us in the midst of our storms and our battles. So let's read the first seven verses here together from God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you? Bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word, which the psalmist says is a lamp unto our feet. One of the truths of the Christian experience is often difficult for Christians to understand is that God will often lead us into storms. If we were the pilot flying the plane, as soon as we saw storm clouds on the horizon, we would want to land the plane, right? We only want to go sailing when the sun is out and it's a clear blue sky. But the Lord often leads us into storms, into challenges, into desolate places. Israel has no idea what they are doing in this wilderness of sin. It is practically a desert. And they are camped next to Mount Horeb, which literally means mountain of desolation. Listen to how one commentator describes the landscape of the area where Israel is staying. He says the wilderness of sin through which they approach to this valley is very barren. It has an extremely dry and thirsty aspect, little or no water, scarcely even a dwarfish shrub to be seen, and the only shelter to the panting pilgrims is under the shadow of the great overhanging cliffs. 
And here is Israel with over a million uh, members of their congregation, including livestock, including children, and they are missing one of the most basic necessities of life. They are missing water. They have parched children, parched livestock, and not a drip to quench their thirst. And the way Israel responds is probably not unlike how many of us would respond in that situation. It is to begin to ask God, God, are you sure you meant to lead us into this wilderness? Are you sure this is the area we are meant to go? What are we doing in a desert? Don't you know that we humans need water? But the problem Israel was having is that God was teaching them a lesson time and again. You see, God had been leading them into difficult situations three times now. Just in the last three months from God splitting the Red Sea and leading his people through the Red Sea, God would bring them into trying circumstances and then he would provide exactly what they need. So God would bring them, for instance, to the waters of Marah. And Israel comes to these bitter waters and they are undrinkable. And what does Israel do? They complain to God, and God miraculously changes these bitter waters, makes them sweet, and provides for this whole congregation of Israel. Then he leads them into the wilderness of sin. And there they, they no longer have a thirst problem, they have a hunger problem. They can see no food. And so again, they complain to God, and God rains down manna from the heavens, providing exactly what the Israelites needed. And now Israel is again facing a trying situation. They can see no water. But instead of reasoning from the past and saying we've been thirsty before and God has provided before, he can provide again. What does Israel do? They question God's leadership. Worse, they even accuse God of maliciously leading them to their deaths. Israel was failing to learn the lesson of God's provision in these trying circumstances. But God knew exactly what his people needed. And God was teaching them a lesson in these storms. He was teaching them to rely on his grace, to rely on his provision in the storm, in the difficulty. And this is a lesson we as God's people often need to learn to depend on our God in every circumstance, at every corner. Because he can indeed provide all that we need. And so we're going to learn from these Israelites. One, we're going to learn from their failure. And two, we're going to learn from God's miraculous provision. How we can trust God in the midst of these difficult storms. So the first thing we're going to learn here is really what not to do in a storm. Israel is said in this situation to harden their hearts. In fact, it is similar to what is said of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart to the judgments of God. But Israel, in a sense, were hardening their hearts to the miraculous provision of God. Listen to what Psalm 95 says of this account as it is, is telling us what happened here at Meribah in Massa. It says to us, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Psalm 95 is commenting on this very story. 
And it is saying Israel is closing its hearts to the lessons that God is teaching them. And so we can learn from Israel to examine our own hearts so that we, have, we don't have the same attitude they have. Because we can very easily develop this wrong attitude, this wrong disposition that is closing our hearts to the lessons of God instead of listening to what he may be saying to us in the midst of these storms. And God wants us to have a tender and a soft heart so that he can speak to us, so that we can depend on him, so that we can trust him in the midst of these trials. There's, so, there's three things that we see in Israel's heart that we need to examine in our own lives if we have any of these conditions because it is testifying of a heart that is hardening itself to God's lessons. And the first sign that our heart may not be in the right place is that we begin to demand of God. Look with me at verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. They are making a demand here. Give us water that we may drink. And Moses sees right through this demand. Right? How does he respond to the Israelites? He says, why do you test me? Why are you testing the Lord? You are not ultimately making this demand of me. I can't produce water out of thin air. You are making this demand of God and saying, give us this water that we may drink. And God has been throughout this time uh, said to test the Israelites. And now it's said that Israel is testing the Lord in this situation. Now the reason that God tests his people is because he is developing us. He is training us. He is helping us to grow and to flourish. He tests us for our good, for our benefit. But Israel's test here expresses a sinfulness of heart. It would be like if a student who is trying to, to pass, you know, to get his license in order to drive on the road, if he were to come to a test, and the day he, he meets the instructor, he says, you know, this time, driver instructor, I'm not going to be tested by you. I'm going to test you. I'm going to put you in the driver's seat, and we'll see how you do today. When the driver instructors say, this is, this is an outrageous idea. I don't need to prove my driving ability to you. You need to prove your driving ability to me. I'm here to help you. You are uh, rebelling against what I am here to do. And so this is what Israel is really doing with God. They're not doing this with some driver instructor. They're doing this with the God of the universe. And not uh, a God who has not, sh it's a God who has shown himself time and again to the Israelites. He's proven his goodness. He's proven that he is with Israel. He's for Israel time and again. Again, God had just miraculously demonstrated his ability to provide for them, changing the waters of Mara to become sweet. He, he has manna that he has showered down from the heavens. His presence is leading them by a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God had demonstrated himself time and again. And Israel says, Lord, we need more proof. We demand that you give us water, that you show yourself again. And it's a sinful demand. It's a demand that lacked faith. God had shown his good provision time and again. Proof Israel, proof surrounded you at every corner of your journey. 
And so it's a failure to recognize all the goodness that God had done for them. All the good things that he had done in delivering them from Egypt, delivering them from bondage, providing for them in their thirst and in their hunger. And so we need to look in our own lives where we may be demanding of God. You're probably not likely demanding that God give you water, not at least in our our first world uh, land here today. But maybe you are saying things like, God, give me this job or I cannot live a happy and, and joyful life in praise of you. God, if, if, if you would give me a spouse, then I would be happy. Then I could praise you. God, if you could give me children, then I would be able to, to worship with your saints and properly give you the glory you deserve. As if God needs to prove himself again to you before you give your whole heart in devotion and service of him. We can often make demands of God that are sinful, that express a discontent in all that God has done. Has he not shown himself? He who has given his son, he who has provided us with churches, with the word of God, with with the constant preaching, he's given us all that we need. We have so much to be thankful for. One of the lessons we often need to learn in these wilderness journeys is that God's grace is sufficient for us, that he never leads us into places where he cannot preserve us. And his hand is able to uphold us in the midst of our hardships and our trials. The second thing that we need to examine our hearts today to see if we are hardening ourselves to our God is that we begin to grumble. You know, the Christian life is a life that ought to be lived in thankfulness. As Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. Yet often what we hear from the lips of believers instead of the the joys of gratitude are the groans of grumbling. And grumbling speaks of of a murmuring under one's breath, of a focusing on the difficulty of the present moment and an ignoring of all that God has done for us in the past. And this is what Israel does in verse three. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. You know, grumbling is toxic and it's infectious. And it really stems again from this heart that is discontent in God. Israel's wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And what characterized these wanderings was not joys of gratitude. But again and again through scripture, you will see what characterized the wanderings of Israel through the wilderness was grumbling and complaining. A grumbling and complaining that was out of place. God, life is too hard. God, life is too difficult. God, why have you made things so hard for us? This was the heart that was in the Israelites. And grumbling really comes from a place that that is similar to the first lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden, right? Adam and Eve had all this provision around them. God had surrounded them with all these trees. They could eat from any tree, except for one tree. And what did the devil do? He came to Adam and Eve and he started to sow in their minds the idea that behind this one tree, God was holding something back. The day that you eat of this tree, you are going to become like God. And what is he doing? He's sowing in their minds the idea that God God has more to give them, more to provide, but he is he is 
got some plan to hold them back, to not allow them to flourish and grow and to, and to, and to prosper as they might in their own seizing of their power. And this is the same case with the Israelites. They had seen God's provision all around them. They had seen how God is able to deliver them from their enemies, provide for their thirst, for their hunger. And yet, even with manna digesting in their bellies, the Israelites are grumbling against God. And they are saying, God, you are even leading us to our deaths. They are ignoring what God has done in the past. They're focusing on the present predicament. And they're saying, God, why would you bring us to this difficulty? You are, you are harming us. You are not seeking our good. You see, this is the heart of grumbling. And it's sad to see, but it's so true to, to, to often how many of us experience our Christian reality. We can easily focus our attention on the problems that we face and ignore his goodness to us. And quite frankly, our grumbling can be just as unbelievable as the Israelites, right? We are led by the Spirit. We have a great deliverance through Jesus Christ who has, who has provided all that we need. Don't we have so much to be thankful for? The redeemed life ought to be a grateful life. And so this is a sinful heart, a heart that is not in the right place as we approach the God who is leading us. The last problem that can occur inside of our hearts is accusation. And it's an indication that our hearts may not be in the right place. Look with me at verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They are accusing Moses and therefore God himself of leading them to their deaths. And they are, they are essentially taking Moses and God to court. The Hebrew word used here in verse 2 for quarrel is a word that is used in covenant lawsuits. And they are saying, we are coming to this, this lawsuit and here is our charge. We are accusing you, Moses, of leading us to our deaths. And we find you guilty. And this is why Moses says, uh, Lord, what do you want me to do with this people? Because they have rocks in, our, in their hands. They are ready to stone Moses. In other words, they have seen, uh, the, the, they, they have come up with this accusation. And they are saying, Moses, you are guilty of murder. And those who were guilty of murder in the Old Testament were to be put to death. And this is why the Israelites got rocks in their hands. And really this is the height of, of Israel's hardness of heart. They are at such a point. They are saying, God, no longer are you going to test us. We are going to put you to the test. And so here's the ultimatum. Either you give us water or we are going to put your chosen leader, Moses, to death. They are putting a God to this ultimatum and saying, prove yourself once again. Are there areas in your life where you find you are accusing God? God, if you were leading my life, then why would you allow this loss to happen? God, if, if you really loved me, then why do I have to endure all this pain? God, if you say that you are with me, then how come you allow these tragedies 
to happen in my life. And it's one thing to come to God with honest questions and to be sincerely seeking, God, how does this fit in the story? What are you doing here? And to wrestle with God over that. But to drive home an accusation like a knife. To pierce God with a refusal to see all the goodness that he has given us. Is to express the same heart that is within the Israelites of accusing God. Israel, how could you accuse God? This is the God who delivered you from your enemies. This is the God who has been providing for you at every corner. How can you say that he is leading you to your death. He has been so good to you, Israel. And sometimes we need to do the same thing with our hearts and remind ourselves of all the good things that God has done for us until we see that our accusations are absolutely groundless. God has been so good to us. And we deserve to praise and glorify him for all of his good leading in our lives. So what God is calling us to do here as we look at the Israelites and their relationship with Moses and with God is to examine our own hearts and say, is there areas in my life where I'm demanding, where I'm grumbling, where I'm accusing God? Is there areas where I'm expressing the same hardness of heart? Because God wants to teach us in these storms and he wants us to have a soft heart that is willing to listen to what he has to say so that we can come to him and we can receive him and we can thank him for his goodness to us that shows itself time and again. God has so much that he wants to show us in these storms. And yet God is so gracious to us. Because even though we may miss these lessons time and again, right? Israel missed the lesson at Marah. They missed the lesson in the wilderness. Yet God comes here again and he shows the same gracious lesson. And God is so patient with us as his people. He again and again shows us his goodness to us. And that's our second point here as we see God's gracious provision. We would expect, wouldn't we, that God would say, Israel, if you don't want my leading, if you think that I'm leading you to your death, all right, enough is enough. I've tried leading you to Israel. I've tried showing my hand. I've tried showing you that I can provide in every circumstance and situation. If you don't want my leading, go on. Try living life for yourselves. But this text shows us that God does not do that. He does not abandon us and say, try living on your own. No, this text beautifully mixes together the heights of the, our depravity that often shows itself and the extravagance of God's grace that he so often showers us with. Look at verse 5 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. God tells Moses to go get the staff with which he struck the Nile, and now he is to pass before the congregation of Israel. And he has elders at his side. What would Israel be thinking at this point? Moses is coming down and he's got the staff with which he struck the Nile. That's what God specifically points to. And you remember what happened when Moses struck that Nile River. The Nile was this, this, this fertile river, this river that gave so much agricultural life to the, 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 the land of Egypt. It, it, it showered um, all, of their, all of their agriculture and the, it was so precious to them that Israel, literally, or sorry, Egypt, Worship this God, this river as a God. And so when Moses comes to this Nile River and he has his staff in hand, what does he do? 
God calls him to strike this river. And this river of life that provided so much life to the nation of Egypt became a river of death as it turned from water into blood. And so now it smelt of this putrid uh, uh, death that was now uh, part of the river. And so it was a judgment on the nation of Egypt. It brought a river of life to death. And now Israel sees Moses coming down and he has elders at his side, which fits the courtroom imagery. It's saying that now God is going to come down and just like he judged Egypt, he is going to judge you, Israel, for the sins that you have committed. And so they would see Moses coming down with the elders at his side and the staff of judgment in his hand. And you can imagine a fear sweeping over the congregation as they said, oh no, now we have gone too far. And God is essentially going to say, Israel, you deserve the same judgment that Egypt deserved for your hardness of heart. And that is exactly what Israel deserved. But that is not what God does. God does something extraordinary in this scene. Follow me. As it says in verse 6, God tells Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God says to Moses, I am going to stand before you on the rock. Now remember, God has been leading his people by a pillar of cloud. And so likely what God is saying is, I'm going to lead you in this cloud to a rock. And I'm going to stand still at this rock. And I want you, Moses, to strike me. Not the grumbling, demanding, accusing sojourners. I want you to strike me. I am going to take the judgment they deserve onto myself. And this, this is an extraordinary scene. Especially for what Paul links together with what God is saying here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 2-4, that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And so in this scene, Moses is called to strike the rock. And remember, striking the Nile was a judgment. Moses is called to judge. He's called to strike this rock. In other words, God is saying, I am going to take the judgment on myself. Because what Israel needs most, more even than water, what they need most is a God who is willing to die on their behalf, to take their sins upon himself. And so I will stand there and I want you to strike me so that I can take their sins, their thanklessness, their selfishness, their blind accusations all upon myself. This is what Christ did for all of us. And that is why the elders are here to watch. They are here to confirm that what God is doing is indeed just. And so they declare to the Israelites that God taking their blame on himself is a just and right thing for God to do. You see, God was not coming down to judge the Israelites. He was there to point them to his goodness, to point them to his grace. And so we see mixed together here the depths of their depravity with the extravagance of God's grace. Israel, I was not bringing you here to lead you to, their, to your death. 
I was here so that I could point you to my own, to the day where I would die on your behalf and take the judgment you deserve onto myself. Oh, what love is this? This is love divine and it's love unmatched that Christ would die on our behalf. And that is what Christ did for you and for me, believer. And amazingly what happens is instead of a river of life turning to a river of death, we have a death that leads to a river of life. And from this rock pours forth such a stream. It's no small trinkle. It provides enough water for a million Israelites and their livestock and their children. God knew exactly what his people needed. And he was providing them with exactly what they needed in this situation again. He was providing for them at every turn. And in the same way, believer, we have everything we need in Christ. From his side poured forth water, showing that he can provide for our every need. From his side poured forth blood, which showed that he can forgive us of all our sins. He was broken. He was stricken. He was smitten. And his body was broken to show us that he bore our transgressions. He bore our sins on himself. And so we have in Christ all that we need. And this is why God often brings us into storms. To show us in the desert, in the storm, in the trial, in the thirst and in the hunger. That Christ is all satisfying and can give us all that we need. And so Moses calls for Israel to remember this event Verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This event would become one of the most significant events in all of Israel's history. Moses calls them to perpetually remember what happened here at Massa and Meribah. And so he sets up these monuments. And you can look through scripture this event is referred to time and again. It's something that shaped the very identity and core of who Israel is. And Moses calls these places Massa and Meribah correlating to the sins that Israel committed. Massa speaks of uh, 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 the contention that arose among Israel, the quarreling. And, and Meribah speaks of the testing. And it says that in, in uh, verse 7, it immediately follows the naming of the places because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord. That's what these places mean. They quarreled and they tested with the Lord. And you may wonder, why, why does Moses call these places after the sins of the people? You know, why, why does he name it something more pleasant, like water in the desert or provision in desolation? Now Moses calls them to remember the sins that they've committed in this circumstance. And I believe the reason is Moses wants Israel to remember whenever they felt like quarreling, whenever they felt like testing the Lord, that their minds would go back to this very event and say, no, we cannot quarrel, we cannot test the Lord. He has shown that he is indeed with us in force. We, we cannot test him again. He's proven himself. And so... We no longer need to test them. Moses summarizes the problem of Israel with the question, is the Lord among us or not? Israel's questioning is his presence with us. And he points to this very situation to say, yes, indeed, the Lord is with you, Israel. And in the same way, we as Christians need to take our minds back to the cross. Whenever we feel like 
questioning the Lord, whenever we feel like testing or accusing the Lord, we need to remember that time where God proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is indeed with us and among us and for us. That he has proven himself. He sent his son, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely give us all things? And the more we take our minds back to what Christ did there, the more our grumbling and complaining and accusing will become silent as we see that God has indeed proven himself. Are you in a storm? Maybe you are here today and you're dealing with a trial. You're dealing with one of these desert situations and you're wondering what God is doing here in the midst of these storms. And can I suggest to you that God is more likely far closer than you ever imagined. You know, there's a story in the New Testament, John chapter 4, of a woman who comes to the well. And you can tell that this woman had been through some storms in her life. She had been through five relationships and she was living with her sixth husband. And she comes to this well and she had no doubt felt the unsatisfaction, the discontentment of life as the trials and pains that she had gone through were impressing upon her mind. But Jesus meets this woman at a well as she is pulling up water and he says something remarkable to her. He says to this woman that he is the water of life and that whoever drinks of the water that he will give him will never be thirsty again. And so in many ways, all the storms, all the challenges that this woman had faced were used to bring her to Jesus so that she would come and meet Jesus at this well, be met by his grace, and see that he is indeed all that her heart needs. You can read of her account as she goes back singing with joy and thankfulness to tell the whole town of what Jesus had done in meeting with her that day. The storms brought her to meet our Savior. And this is why God often brings us into storms and not around them, because he wants to show that he can provide all that we need in every circumstance and in every trial. There's a beautiful poem. Authorship is debated, but it beautifully encapsulates, I believe, the experience that many of us feel in these storms. And you've maybe heard it before, but I think in this light, uh, it will hopefully take on new meaning for you. One night I dreamed a dream. I was, I was walking along the beach with my Lord, and across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. And after the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. And this really troubled me. So I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. And I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever, during your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. I believe that beautifully encapsulates how God often works with us. You know, in those storms, we can begin like Israel to say, is the Lord among us or not? Is his presence here? Is he indeed with us? 
And it's often in these very places where God reveals and meets us with his grace and shows us his presence, his provision, his footprints. You see, it is in these places that God wants to meet us with his grace and reveal himself to us. And has he not shown that he is a God who can provide all we need? Has he not shown that he is indeed with his people and among us and for us? Look no further than the cross, where we see Jesus die on our behalf, where we see the Son of God in that desert place cry out, I thirst, all so that he could give you the the rivers of life that you need. It was his Son who, who is in this desolate place that met us with the very grace that we need in our lives. And so, may God strengthen you and your faith to trust him through the storms. And may he meet you with his powerful grace there in that place. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have indeed shown that you are with your people. That you loved us so much that you did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And so we pray, Lord, that more and more we would reason from your goodness to us, reason from your grace to us, that we would trust you in the midst of our difficulties and our storms to know that all things will indeed work together for good because of this great God who is leading and guiding us. May your spirit, Lord, work in our hearts that we may know that you are with us even to the ends of the earth. And may we go out with joy and rejoicing. And we pray especially, Lord, for anyone here who's going through a challenge, who's going through a storm. Please meet them with your grace. And may they see that you are all satisfying. That you are the one who can truly give them what they need in the circumstance that they are in. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.